Hello, right-minded listeners. I just want to thank the Miami Book Fair for all of the fantastic authors they have uh, rounded up for us to to talk with on right-minded. Sarah Manguzo, Steve Allman, David Yoon, Angie Cruz, and Jochito Gonzalez are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are all gathering on right-minded as well. Thanks to the folks at the Miami Book Fair. And, and you know, they, along with Patty Smith, Chef Ken Corbin, Zibby Owens, Moshe Safdie, Ross Gay, Stacey Schiff, are, are, are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everybody in person, but also in recorded conversations, which are streamed live from the fair from Sunday, November 13 through Sunday, November 20th. So be sure to listen in. Uh, for more information, go to Miami Book Fair or follow MBF at at Miami Book Fair, hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I bet you could just Google Miami Book Fair and find out all of this information. So tune in and a big thanks to the Miami Book Fair. Hello, listeners, readers, writers, authors. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded. Grant, hello, my trusted co-host. Hello, Brooke. You're also my trusted co-host. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're working our way through our Miami Book Fair guests. And this was kind of an exciting thing that happened to us. And it's not too often uh, you get a catalog of possible interviews to choose from. But even more cool has been that half the people we were presented with I was familiar with and half the people I'm not. So like Steve Almond, who we had on last week, uh, I've known about forever. And Shotil Gonzalez, who's been on my to read list forever and is going to be next week's guest, um, you know, is another person that I was just excited about. And then along comes David Yoon, today's guest, someone I knew nothing about. And it turns out he's written a lot of books. And The Sweetest Love Story, his latest book, Frankly in Love, which combines really serious issues around race and culture. And it's done in such a lighthearted and straightforward way that I found both arresting and refreshing at the same time. And so that's going to be our subject matter today, Grant. We're talking about writing about race, uh, racial dynamics, and also about YA being a space that's really expanding our sense of what's possible. And I, you know, this is a bit of a spoiler because I asked this question to David Yoon, today's guest, and we'll hear what he has to say. But I, I was feeling there was something quite unique to YA that's creating this kind of possibility for broader conversations. And Grant, I wonder if you think that this is true, you know, that YA writers and maybe readers too are freer with their explorations and observations um, you know than is otherwise the case in other genres I think it is true and, and I'm gonna throw out a theory just for the sake of theorizing I think the answer to your question is yes and I think that's because there is something just so unique to YA that expands our sense of what's possible and that's simply because that's the nature of being a young adult it's it's interesting how the word adult is part of that name of the genre because the genre is really focused on teens, but most teens are, are more than ready to become adults. And I think all the fervency and drama of teen energy is necessary to life because it's a stage of life when you begin to see clearly what life can and should be. You see how others, older adults, us, <laughs> have compromised and sold out or just not seen things right. And so many of the rules of life are wrong. And it just is so clear at that age. Mm -hmm. and. That's the essential tension of that age, right? To feel fully capable as an adult and maybe even smarter than the adults around you, but to be held back by the, the young descriptor. Uh, you know, you're too young to really be an adult. 
and and maybe I'm just projecting my own teen self onto this, but I remember a moment when I was a teen uh, when a friend told me that many of the '60s hippies from from the generation before me uh, ended up working on Wall Street, you know, like the activist Jerry Rubin. And and my teen brain just couldn't imagine how one could go from being a '60s activist to a conventional suburban capitalist. But now I get it. Um, life's abrasions and requirements uh, wear away at the you know the extreme and the expansive nature of being young, and people who rebel against their parents sometimes often become versions of their parents. So true. <laughs> yeah. And, and back then I could only see what was clearly wrong with so many conventions. And I was frustrated that they weren't being torn down. And so the nature of youth is to see that truth and to see it with more clarity and, and to act on truth more boldly and to explore the world more vigorously, which is a force that we older adults, I think, need. So I know my reading as a teen led me to more places than my reading does now, unfortunately. And I, th I think that was because I was so open. Uh, I didn't feel time pressure. I didn't have an agenda or a history of taste. And so I've loved watching my kids just pick up books to read just because. And I think that just because is a big part of the best part of reading and writing. Yeah, well, I love this theory a lot. I mean, it just makes so much sense. And it's, of course, resonates with me because my reading was also much freer. And I think also because clearly we're in this space where we also read for work. I almost don't get to read for pleasure. I mean, thank God for our guests because I get exposed to things that I wouldn't otherwise. And, you know, David's book, is rom-com, um, which is one of those genres that I just, I don't know, I don't explore, I don't allow myself to, I don't really think about it, but I loved it. And what I particularly loved was just, like I said, because it, it's tackling these really serious issues. And just for the listener's sake, his protagonist's name is Frank Lee, frankly in love, cute little play on <laughs> words there. And, uh, you know, his parents are Korean, uh, and, and they're very racist in the book, you know, against anyone who's not Korean. And so in the novel, uh, Frank's sister has fallen in love with and later early in the book marries her black boyfriend. Um, and she's essentially excommunicated from the family. And then the early part of the book, Frank falls in love with a white girl, and there's a lot of grappling with the consequence of this love. And the story is about these two Korean American kids who pretend to date each other to appease their families. Um, and, you know, the Frank is dating the white girl and Joy Song, the other Korean girl, is dating a Chinese kid. Uh, but as the time goes on, the two Korean Americans start to fall for each other. That's the premise of the book. So I'm not giving anything away. But you know, it, it's a book that has you grappling with your feelings about allegiance to parents, to culture, to values, to history. Uh, you know, and we are a culture that's both more diverse and more tribal than ever. So that's another thing that I loved about this book. I found it really easy to digest, but also so out front with the racial dynamics. Uh, you know, that there was times where I was like, God, he's either really brave or like, yikes, he just wrote that. <laughs> but what I love and when, you know, we're going to see when we interview him, my gosh, like, what an optimist, you know, I, I think he has a really refreshing take on things. And I did feel like he was peeling back the curtain of a Korean American family, you know, and showing the parts that are not so flattering. But of course, you know, the obvious truth is that in these kinds of dynamics are true in any family USA, right? And so you can kind of read between the lines, all kinds of families have 
feelings about their kids marrying outside their race, outside their assigned gender, outside their religion, you name it. And so that's the thing I just, you know, wanted to reiterate about how much I loved reading this, which was, you know, tackling these issues so fearlessly, you know, opening up in ways about racism, which I think he does also brilliantly in today's interview. And doing so through YA feels really important to me and maybe more important, um, you know, than it would be through other genres like literary fiction or uh, women's fiction because of who YA's readership is. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that book because YA's readership is different than many might imagine. Uh, we think of teens when we think about the young adult genre, because that's one of the definitions of the genre. They are you know, novels with teens as the main characters, but actually 70% of all YA titles are purchased by adults between the ages of 18 and 64. And I really see this at NaNoWriMo too. There are a lot of adults who are writing YA. Um, it's just their chosen genre. And I've always been fascinated with this, um, with the genre because of this. Um, my kids, for example, um, I expected them to read YA, but they read very little YA as teens. And I think it's a little bit like how most people like high school movies more after they've experienced high school. Uh, adults seek out YA titles in part because they want to re-experience their teen selves to experience that moment when life felt both so intense and so expansive and open. And I want to point out also that that David Yoon's wife is Nicola Yoon, who is also a popular YA book author, and she is also Black. And their story as a couple is really interesting because they grew up enjoying a lot of rom-coms. They were rom-com goobers, as David put it, and and then realized uh, the rom-coms were you know entirely about white people. And as a result, they're not only writing stories with BIPOC characters, but they've launched an imprint, Joy Revolution, with a commitment to publish young adult romance novels starring people of color and written by people of color. And the intent of the imprint lies in the name itself, uh, with the authors dedicated to bringing stories that spark joy and offer a safe space to readers. I, I love romance goobers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great descriptor. So cute. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's a thing, obviously. Like, here we are in 2022 having these conversations still. Um, you know, like every person in publishing, I know and, you know, have known that publishing has been so, so white and that, you know, it's staff and it's also authors and it's storylines and people have lamented it, you know, recognized it. Some people have been more proactive. And I think we've seen a lot more proactivity in the last few years. Uh, and I think that these conversations that have been having around equity and inclusion, you know, basically stemming like so many things out of George Floyd's murder, um, you know, it's trickling through to who's getting deals and also the stories that authors are telling. And what's changed is that the industry, I think, also finally had its own reckoning about like, we're not going to have these same conversations about who our potential readers are, because the reality is like, we don't know. And also, not only do they, you not know, there's a little bit of like a blindness around it. Um, as we've talked about before, you know, a, a belief system, a little bit innate that, you know, certain kinds of people don't read books, which of course is ridiculous. Uh, you know, and we're seeing this kind of change across the media landscape, like there's di more diversity everywhere. And that's because it's expected. And I want to point to Bridgerton, which I've talked about before, but I think it's such a great example in the world of television because of wide, how widely popular it is and, you know, that they're taking such a totally unique approach to high society London, reimagining it with a diverse uh, set of characters. And we've seen that on Broadway with Hamilton and other shows. And it 
obviously like all of this just changes the landscape, as I said, but I think it changes the future too. And I want to share a little personal story because I'll never forget when I watched Hamilton, the play on Disney plus with James. And this was a couple years ago, he must've been nine. Um, and we had only listened to the soundtrack. And so then when we watched the play on TV, it was like midway through the production when he looked at me and said, did you know Hamilton was black? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a cute, innocent question. And, you know, of course, the real Hamilton was not a black man, but he was an immigrant. Um, and I just think the very fact of being open to conversations and that, you know, this reimagining that we're, you know, reading and watching is powerful for our up and coming generations. Yeah, you're right. These uh, efforts are having a very, you know, tangible and meaningful effect in the world, as you as you've witnessed, Brooke, uh, and they're changing the culture, obviously. Um, and yet, for every step forward, there's always a step back too. I just read about a backlash in streaming services that, you know, they, the streaming service signed a whole bunch of pilots uh, that were centered on diverse characters and then basically canceled anything and fired their staff of color. And this is what backlash looks like, of course, which is, you know, making overtures towards change and then busting everything you've worked for, which delegitimizes everything and makes all efforts towards progress look a whole lot like lip service. And I'm, I'm curious, Brooke, since you're more attuned to public, the publishing world than I am, have you seen anything comparable in publishing? I think what we're seeing in book publishing is complicated. There's a lot more authors of color getting publishing contracts, which is obviously great. Um, and we're seeing a lot of those authors making a lot more money, and that's very well-deserved. Uh, but there is something insidious in this industry, too, because the more writers of color that get contracts and recognition, the more houses are saying that they want writers of color. And then the more white authors are lamenting that they can't get book deals. And I've heard this a lot. And that's what I mean by insidious. Like it just there's an undercurrent of sort of discontent and resentment. And I've tried to counter those narratives, which are coming largely from older white demographics of authors who feel that they can't get a book deal in this environment. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it might be true they can't get a book deal, but I think to suggest that they can't get it because they're white is inaccurate. Uh, now, I will say that maybe because they're older, that that might be more true. The industry is also ageist. And they're willing to cut bait with previously successful authors for fresh blood. I mean, that's kind of a terrible metaphor, but this has just always been true. And so we're in a brave new world right now. I think there's a big appetite for fresh writing. Uh, and it's just an interesting consideration, you know, who can write about race and how. And, you know, David's book, uh, Frankly in Love, is so, so good, Grant. But if his parent characters were white racists and not Korean racists. I, I just don't think this book could have been published right now. So that's just the reality. Yeah. Well, I'll just say if there's an, any industry that needs a reckoning and a whole lot of soul searching, it's publishing in my point of view. Um, you know, you just have to look at the data. I read that 75% of the books published last year were by white people. So, you know, the data speaks to those people who, or to those people's misperceptions that you mentioned, Brooke. And yeah, it's going to be a subject that we're, we're going to be dealing with for a long, long time. So I look forward to talking more about this and other topics with David after this short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? 
it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder welcome back everyone today's guest is david yoon the new york times best-selling author of frankly in love super fake love song and for adult readers, Version Zero and City of Orange. He is a William C. Morris Award finalist and an Asian Pacific American Award for Young Adult Literature Honor Book recipient. He's the co-publisher of Joy Revolution, a random house young adult imprint dedicated to love stories starring people of color. He's also co-founder of Universe Media, which currently has a first look deal with anonymous content for film TV development, which is exciting, David. And um, you grew up in Orange County, as did I. So we've got that in common. And now you live in LA with your wife, the novelist Nicola Yoon, and your daughter. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled. You know, the New York Times review of this new book, Frankly in Love, uh, said of your protagonist, Frank Lee, that he's one of the most likable male YA protagonists I've ever read in a long time. And honestly, <laughs> I thought that too, right out the gate. You know, Frank is self-effacing, he's funny, he's righteous about things without being heavy-handed, and he's just a good kid who's struggling <laughs> to find his place in the yeah. world. Um, you know, and so I, I wanted to ask you about Frank Lee. Could you talk about why it was important to you to make Frank be, you know, pretty innocent um, and, and kind, you know, or was he just organically, is this how he showed up on the page for you? Oh, I mean, Frank went through many iterations. He he started out really sweet and then stuff started happening in my life. Like my, my dad got really sick and I think it affected my mood because Frank became kind of bitter. Mm. There were, there were early drafts where he was just kind of upset about racism and not belonging. And my editor was like, what happened to the old Frank? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going through things. And so then the concept was make a character that I wish I could have been when I was Frank's age. And so that's why Frank is just like, he's, he's way more aware. He's much wiser than I was when I was 17. And he has the benefit of learning, you know, in a single school year, what it took me like 20 years to figure out. Um, so he, he definitely matured as I wrote him and continued to iterate on his, on his personality until he became like, my ideal self plus my favorite parts of my friends and my favorite parts of my wife um, all rolled up into one character. Well, and before we move on from characters, uh, just because I wanted to ask you this question too. I mean, in the in the book, uh, the sister, Frank's sister, falls in love with a, a black man and ends up marrying him, is very ostracized from the family. And so clearly you're drawing from personal experience. We're going to talk about your wife and your endeavors, and she's Jamaican-American. So mm -hmm. what, I mean, how important was it to draw these characters and these kinds of different racial dynamics that you had going on right out the gate? Uh, I mean, it, it just is sort of in the air in my life. You know, it's not, um, I mean, it is important because I want to tell my truth uh, and things that I think are important. Um, obviously, you know, when, when I decided to get married to Nikki, uh, you know, she's black, I'm Asian. My parents are pretty traditional and they didn't come to the wedding. Let's just say that. And we didn't actually talk for like around 10 years. And so it was, you know, it was a really rough time and that kind of thing affects you and it kind of it's a hard truth that you get exposed to. And um, I wanted to deal with it in, in fiction in a way that was just really open and not kind of preachy because my parents had their reasons. 
And traditional parents, you know, this is true of like a lot of immigrant kids experience, like their parents have their reasons. They're not just like crazy or mean or closed-minded. They come from different cultures. And once they come to America, those cultures clash. And that interface of cultures is where interesting things happen, but also like difficult things happen. And so I wanted to treat it in a way that was fair to both sides, as hard as it is. And that's why, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but <laughs> uh, Frank's sister doesn't have to suffer for that long. Hmm. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, David. And your work also has a lot of uh, shapes to it. It's It's been characterized as rom-com, as YA, as romance, but you, you've also written adult fiction. And I was actually first introduced to you through your novel version zero, because I'm Always looking for stories that question or expose Silicon Valley, just to reveal my <laughs> own bias. But it was it was great to read your take on that. And I'm 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 curious, how do you characterize your own body of work? And when writing Frankly in Love, what kind of readership were you holding in your mind? Because it sounds like it did really go through a lot of different um, I don't know iterations. Yeah, so I'm kind of dumb about that kind of stuff as a writer. I I don't really think about the audience. I write mostly because I'm trying to figure out some kind of truth or a question that I have in my life at the moment. Um, with Frankly in Love, you know, I was thinking a lot about my own identity and the, the spark was my dad got really sick and he had terminal cancer. And once you, once something like that happens, you start to think about your place in the world and in the family. And, you know, with Super Fake Love Song, my second book, it was during the pandemic and I just wanted to write something really funny. But with Version Zero, you know, I worked in technology for 13 plus years and I, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of questions about what the heck I was doing that whole time, uh, what technology means. And with with the City of Orange, I was thinking a lot about um, the birth of my daughter and how I was going to change and how my life changed. And th- I reframed that in the form of an apocalypse, uh, interestingly, um, because it kind of felt like one in a strange way it felt also kind of like quarantine it's been described as like a covid quarantine book even though it totally was not meant to be that so whatever genre or audience uh the book uh, winds up falling into really what it comes from is my search for an answer to a particular question that i'm obsessing over at the time and i mean i i I just want to be like kazuo ishiguro when i grow up Hmm. you know because because that (laughs) that guy you know he can write about king arthur or ai or a butler in a mansion, and and I'll still read it because he's got such a keen sense of craft for one thing, but also just exploring the questions of our our existence as human beings, and I'm there for it. I want to take us back to this question about just writing racial dynamics. I know you said it's just your experience and it's it's what's been all around you, but one of the things that struck me about I actually was telling you that I listened to Frankly in Love and thought your narrator did a, a fantastic job with the audiobook. Um, but, you know, um, your protagonist, Frank's parents, they're, they're quite racist and you tackle their <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> their biases, obviously, pretty head on. And, and Frank is really incensed by this and, and disturbed by it through most of the book. And I was sharing with Grant, you know, had Frank's parents been white, I would have been much harsher on them. I, you know, I, I also wonder if publishers would have shied away from the depictions of racism coming from a white family. So I was just curious about your thoughts on this and why did you feel that you wanted to show this kind of racial tension at the heart of a Korean American family? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I like that you brought up if if they'd been white, it it would have been very different because you know America has on paper these aspirations for you know um, diversity, and so if you have you know a family who's been here for six generations still being racist, that's not it's not funny. Um, but when you have a recent immigrant who is is I mean, Korea is a very homogenous society, and to be thrown into this new culture of in the United States of America, where everyone's talking about diversity and, and racial harmony and tolerance that totally clashes with the native Korean culture that, you know, frankly, his parents came from. And so they're struggling to deal with the fact of raising a kid in this multicultural environment and trying to essentially maintain their idea of Korea in a foreign country, which I think is also really fascinating. And the other thing, so so there's tension there, but it's also I gotta say it's funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. like if you if you ever hang out with immigrant kids of any culture where the mother country is pretty homogenous and the parents are super racist, it comes up and you don't actually expect it. And when it does happen, it's so outrageous that you just have to laugh. You know, like like I'll take my mom as an, an example. She was missing one of her pandemic relief checks, and she thought. That because the mailman switched from a black guy who'd been servicing the neighborhood for 30 years to this young Mexican guy, she was like, oh, I don't trust him. And I was like, you're so racist. But at the same time, I was laughing because it's just it's just so outrageous. And it's so indicative of, of her worldview where like you are defined by your ethnicity. Um, and it just t- go, totally goes against my sensibility, my American sensibility that you can come from anywhere and you're still American. Well, it's interesting, David, and interesting that you're you're tackling it as a writer, but also now as a publisher, which is, I, I imagine, just a, such a very different role. Uh, and I mention that because you've you've started. Um, uh, let me see. I'm forgetting the, the name of your your new publishing imprint. Oh, Joy Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which publishes, as I understand it, why romance novels starring people of color and written by people of color. That's right. And it looks like your first books are coming out next year. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this leap into publishing and what it's been like for you and Nicola to move into that role. This is corny to say, but it's kind of a years long dream come true. Like uh, Nikki and I met in writing school and uh, we quickly discovered that we were both rom-com, you know, goobers and we love love <laughs> and stories about love. And we quickly noticed also that all of our favorite books and, and movies had no people of color in them, uh, aside from like the sidekick or like the sonogram technician. And and uh, so we we didn't know what the hell we we're doing. We really wanted to promote diversity in romance, um, but we were not published. We had no connections, and so it was only until you know Nikki got published and I got published that we had the 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 sort of name and and relationships that would enable us to start something like Joy Revolution with Barbara Marcus, who's president of Random House um, Kids, and and so our imprint lives within Random House which means that we look like a small boutique. We give authors a small boutique attention, but we have huge resources behind us. And it's so it's kind of an amazing combination of the best of both worlds. And we've been honored to receive just like a flood of super high quality manuscripts by authors of color, uh, which is really, really inspiring um, to know that just this great stuff has been sitting there waiting for a home to publish it. And so... Don't tell anyone, but we do this stuff for free. It's like a, it's definitely a passion project. Um, and one of our main goals is to just show people being people, 
you know, a lot of stories about people of color, you know, they tend to be about issues, whether it's like police violence or Asian hate. Um, and you got to publish those stories. Those issue books are important because if you forget the struggle, that's bad. Uh, but there's a whole other spectrum of stories that is just not there. I call it the Harold and Kumar go to White Castle uh, standard of storytelling, you know, <laughs> where it's just like two dudes who want to get high and get burgers. And that that story gave me life because I was like, there's no struggle. I get a break. I get to relax a little bit and see people who look like me up on the screen just having fun. And so that's that's our mission is to really publish stories where you can settle in, relax, um, just be swept away by a great story and and not have that dread that that something's going to go wrong to the character who looks like you. Hmm. I love that. And congratulations. Uh, and I wanted to ask you a question about YA. I, I feel this, but only anecdotally. So I want your take on it, that YA is uniquely situated to be able to tell these stories that feature more complex cultural and racial interactions. And uh, my hunch is because the readership is maybe younger and more diverse and maybe more attuned to the work that's coming out and possibly because of social media spaces like Bookstagram um, and Book Talk, which has, you know, just such a generally voracious readership and people sharing, um, you know, about books. And so I was curious if you share this take or have any insight. Oh, totally. It Like teens read books, you know, I've, I've run into like teens on vacation and they, they're not looking at their screens. They're looking at a book because they want to break from their screens. And so it's really inspiring to see. And they're, they're also just still very, very curious about the world and the potential that of, of what the world can be. Uh, and so when they're presented with uh, an identity or an experience that's not necessarily their own, they're more open to just accepting it and exploring it. Um, and so why is definitely totally at the cutting edge of, of just showcasing diversity, which I mean, I really appreciate because, and, and librarians and teachers really appreciate too, because those books are highly teachable. And if you're a teacher or a librarian, you know, the struggle of like finding new things to teach. You're always just scrambling. Like, what are the, what should I teach the kids? Oh God. So why is an invaluable resource for educators as well? Well, David, I, I, I'm impressed by how I'm struggling for the right word here, but just how freely and boldly you're able to write about racial dynamics and talk about them here as proof of that. But I, I get a lot of questions or I hear a lot of questions from, from writers and they're wondering how to write about race or even if they should write about race. Uh, I recently got that question on, on a podcast that I uh, hosted with Michael Salasis. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you have any, any advice for those writers out there who are grappling with this question. Well, I, I mean, call me idealistic, but I, my number one rule is write whatever the hell you want, honestly, about whatever character you want. It's just up to you to write them well. You know, if you write something that is hurtful and insensitive and stereotypical, then you're going to get punished and your books are not going to sell. So like, if, but on the other hand, if you want to get at something that's really true about the universal human experience, um, what's in it for the reader, right? Like we talked about before then you're naturally going to find yourself wanting to seek out a character who's written with sensitivity. And like, you know, if you don't know, like if you're writing about a black character and you don't know any black people, go out and get to know some black people, you know, make some black friends. <laughs> and it's so simple, but it really is a matter of exposure. 
the more experienced you are in life, the more nuanced and sensitive your characters are going to be. And then you can get at the real truths because I do believe that there are universal truths to the human experience that really transcend any kind of category that we have. But also, you know, have fun with it too, because we all know race is an artificial construct. It doesn't really add up and it doesn't really make a whole lot of logical sense. So recognize it for how absurd it is and, and don't take it too seriously because the fact is like my kid is mixed and we know a bunch of mixed kids. They're uncategorizable and they're going to, they're going to learn to make their own nomenclature and and jargon about how to describe themselves that we just haven't come up with yet we're stuck with the old language and so the only way forward really is to just kind of get at what's true about a person no matter what you know where they come from or what they look like what makes them them and i think if you write that with enough sensitivity you got you got yourself a great story um but it it does take uh your due diligence i think it's it's a inspiring take david and i can see you know just given your sensibilities how you're able to write these very lighthearted stories with such serious issues at the heart you know it's not actually an easy thing to balance so so thank you for doing it thanks yeah and you know given your new publishing endeavor i'm curious if you have as much time to write as you did i mean clearly you're super prolific so my question for you is whether the next book will be another ya romance and if that's this is the genre you're sticking with because i'm i'm sure your readers are hoping so (laughs) yeah i don't know we like to joke that we have like four jobs um it's so bad we're just busy (laughs) all the time but yeah i it's so soul fulfilling you know, doing stuff with Joy Revolution, it's so fulfilling to see the books come together and we're doing cover discussions and marketing discussions. And it's also so fulfilling to talk with anonymous content about just possibilities. We do have to get up at four in the morning sometimes to get writing done. Uh, Nikki and I are currently co-authoring something. It's a YA thing. That's about all I can say about it. Uh, <laughs> but that's been really fun. It's the first thing we've written together ever. And meanwhile, I'm working on my uh, my next adult book um and that's it's a sort of an adult telling of a classic story and you know in the in the meantime just doing doing small things like i wrote a story for neil schusterman's anthology called gleanings based in his uh scythe universe and that was fun neil's just a great guy to work with um so i don't know we're just constantly working it's kind of a problem when you when you're an author people forget that you're actually running your own small business and the product is you. And so to know when to stop working at the end of the day is, is you almost need like someone to hit you over the head and say, just relax. <laughs> but it's worth it. It really is. Yeah, I think Grant and I can relate to that. And congratulations, because there's so much exciting stuff. And thank you so much for coming on today with us, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was so nice talking with you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Well, Grant, this week we're talking about book subscription boxes, <laughs> and the timing is not bad as we head into the holiday season because maybe our listeners want to consider getting a book subscription box for a loved one this holiday. Uh, and these boxes have been around for a long time, but I feel like they're taking off in new ways, which is uh, why it's a trend. And also, I, I also think there's something about uh, conversations we've had in the past about more people writing during the pandemic, maybe reading more as well. Uh, and just in general, that there's maybe more genre fiction and YA readers out there, particularly among young people. And a lot of these boxes do feel tailored to that demographic, um, you know, Gen Z and younger. So I'm curious, have you ever seen these or ordered a subscription box for you or your kids? You know, I actually haven't seen a, a physical subscription box and my kids, uh, I guess they aren't the subscription box types, but I know these boxes are very, very popular. Uh, a few years ago, it seemed like there was a new subscription box company every other day. And I find them intriguing. I, I think it's kind of like you buy yourself a gift, except that when you receive it, it feels like someone else gave it to you because the <laughs> box is full of surprises. So it's kind of, it sounds fun. And you mentioned that the boxes focus on the younger demographic, which is true. Um, I also find that they, they also focus on girls and women who tend to be, honestly, most of the reading public, actually. So I was wondering, Brooke, do you have any examples of subscription boxes that we might turn listeners onto for the Christmas gifts they're going to give me? Yeah. Well, the one I was most familiar with was Owl Crate because I have actually seen them before and um, met with them before. And uh, so I, I was curious and went on to try to find some other ones that are similar. I was also shocked by how many there are. And I found a great list on writersedit.com. So I want to be sure to give them credit. A lot of them are themed. So writersedit.com had uh, talked about fantasy boxes, one offered by Owl Crate, um, another company called Fairy Loot. Uh, adult, young adult boxes by a place called the YA Chronicles. There's general fiction boxes coming from Book Riot and Once Upon a Book Club. And then I loved seeing this. There's a subscription box for writers offered by Storied Crate. And this one has, um, let's see, books presumably about writing, storytelling tools, inspirational items, writing prompts, and more. So I thought that was cool. I thought maybe I'll put that one on my own holiday wish list. <laughs> okay. It's, it's on my list for you, Brooke. Um, good hinting through the show about what I should get you. I love all these um, varieties of boxes. And I even once wondered if NaNoWriMo should put out a monthly box uh, as well, like Storied Crate. So I'm going to go check that out. I thought it was a good idea to, to help people write and to help our nonprofit finances, uh, but also book boxes. They can be a really good sales and marketing tool. They they are so uh, appealing, even just to look at. And, and and just as I'm saying this, Brooke, I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a business idea to you. I'm thinking how cool it would be if there was a special small press indie publisher book box, and maybe the two of us should do that because the books that get included in these boxes are largely, if not exclusively, from the big four publishers, right? Yeah, I mean, that's my understanding. It is a pay to play kind of endeavor. So I do like the idea of us or maybe someone like the Independent Book Publishers Association <laughs> taking yeah. on a small press box. It's a lot of work. And it's then a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And the other thing is, it's important to remember that as an author, you have to give a deep discount. Um, and the other question is about whether these books are returnable, you know, because this is where the real pain lies for authors trying to promote all is well and good until the returns start to pour in. And then it can make something that's seemingly fun feel more like a liability. Yeah. So this is a twofold thing for listeners. Um, maybe you want to consider being a customer for uh, one of these book boxes. Um, if you have a voracious fantasy or YA reader in your family, it might be, you know, 
perfect holiday gift or, or maybe like Brooke, you're coveting the writer box and <laughs> gra- gracefully declining my business proposals. And if you're a writer author, you know, it's, it's definitely good to be aware that, that these are out there. But I think trying to get your own book uh, to be one of the picks is, is just going to be a tough uphill battle. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well, Grant. Thank you. (laughs) And listeners, uh, as always, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you're looking for a great, lighthearted, but also consequential holiday read, I do highly recommend Frankly in Love. And Grant, we're about midway through NaNoWriMo. So I want to give a shout out to all the participants, your peeps out there, (laughs) myself included. Right, right, right. We're doing it. And uh, thank you. We'll be back next week as we're carrying through NaNoWriMo season with another new episode. Thanks, everybody.